Please open your Bibles with me, if you got one, and I know you do because they're in front of you in the pews, to uh, Jonah, uh, end of chapter 2. Please rise as we read God's holy word today. We're going to be reading Jonah 2, verse 10. Well, that's not Jonah. There we go. And we'll read through 3, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. And the, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. He went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 days, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached to the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let the people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. May God bless this reading of his word today. Please have a seat. There's nothing quite like getting a do-over in your life, is there? Oh, it's great. It's the best. True story. A couple months ago, Idaho police pulled over a teenage girl who was spotted driving backwards around her subdivision over and over again, around all these blocks. They pulled her over. They said, what are you doing? She said, well, my parents let me borrow the car but they'll know by how many miles I put on it, I went way far away. So I decided to drive backwards to take some of those miles off. She was looking for a do-over, did not quite get the do-over she wanted. But Jonah did. Jonah gets the mother of all do-overs here. I have to imagine he's pretty much relieved after three days in complete darkness inside the belly of a fish, listening to those strange aquatic sounds, finally being spat up onto dry land and blinking into the daylight and hearing the word, the word of the Lord coming to him once more. And he realizes he's been given a do-over. God is working through this man who deserved death and judgment, as we've talked about before, but now is being offered grace and mercy to go and fulfill his mission. In effect, when we get to the end of chapter 2 here, the book of Jonah effectively rewinds all the way back to the beginning. It's very weird. It's very unique in all of, all of the Bible that it goes all the way back to the beginning all to give Jonah a do-over, except that this time... 
Jonah makes a better choice. He doesn't. It would have been pretty funny in a sad way if he just fled all over again. But he doesn't. He obeys God. Finally, he obeys his Lord. He's been given a do-over because of his repentance. And he's determined to make the best he can with it. How about you? How about me? Have we repented? Have we turned away from our sins, turned toward God, and been given a do-over? And if so, what are you doing with the do-over God has given you in your life? I want you to think about that as we look at today's account here at Jonah, because we're going to see this theme of repentance, this theme of a do-over, is very much at the center of the book. So three chapters into this book, and Jonah has finally made it to his destination. You'll remember, he's going to Nineveh, the great city at the heart of the Assyrian Empire. He gets there, and he is very, in effect, a stranger in a strange land. He is surrounded by his lifelong national enemies, and he's tasked with telling them that they're all doomed. The life of a prophet is never easy. A lot of them die very young. And probably Jonah realizes, well, I'm going to obey God, but my life expectancy is 45 minutes tops the second I enter that city and tell these people they're all doomed. But something really amazing happens here. The people hear him and they repent. And in a book full of astonishing developments, crazy surprises, this right here is probably the biggest of them all, bigger than even a giant fish coming up to swallow a man. That the people, this pagan city full of proud, non-God-fearing people would hear these words and repent. For the second time, the author of Jonah makes this very important point of saying how big and how vast the city of Nineveh is. He really wants us to get the sense, even here in the 21st century, of the scope of Nineveh. We know that in this book it tells us 120,000 people lived in the city for us today. That doesn't seem that great. But back then, that was a mighty metropolis. And for Jonah to go into the heart of the city where the people would look at themselves and say, look how wicked we've been. We might as well keep on doing it. We're strong. We're prosperous. We're great. We have a great city. So why would this city suddenly fold? Why would it collapse? That's the question that should pop into our minds. Why in the span between the space of one verse when Jonah proclaims these words from the Lord and the people suddenly repent. Why did that happen? That's the question I want to know. Well, to know that, we have to look at one very important thing. That wasn't Jonah. It was the fact that God's word was brought into their midst where it had never been before. That God's word had been brought into the middle of Nineveh and detonated like a bomb. Now, Jonah, I imagine, I have to use a lot, of, a lot of imagination in this chapter because it doesn't really talk much about Jonah. 
chapter 3 is not a Jonah chapter, it's a Nineveh chapter. But I have to imagine that Jonah, he's grimly going up and down these streets. And in my imagination, he's got a big bell, because that's what I imagine when those people going up and down streets proclaiming the end of the world always have a big bell or sign language. You know, so he's ringing that bell, and he's saying the same message over and over again. God says, Jonah, say this message. And Jonah's like, okay, I'll say that message and not one word more. And this is what he says. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He says that over and over again. In the Hebrew language, open up your Hebrew Bibles that you've got in front of you, no doubt. Right? In the Hebrew language, if you look at this verse, this utterance, it's five words. That's the shortest prophetic utterance in the entire Bible, by far. Five words of God. God didn't give them any more. He said, Jonah, these five words I want you to go see. These five words drove an entire city to their knees. Five words from God. And you look at them, you go, that's not really that much. We know through in history... You can compare it to Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Some of you probably studied that in school. How many words was the Gettysburg Address? Does anybody know? I heard somebody say something. What? Less than 400. 272. By by their standards of the day, that was ridiculously short. They had no place to go. You might as well turn out and hear a politician speak all afternoon. 272, they actually mocked Abraham Lincoln in the newspapers for how short that was. And yet, what a great speech. Power can be packed into a little bit of word. I wish politicians today took a cue from Abraham Lincoln. Can you imagine a politician getting up there today and giving a five-word speech and then, oh, that's it, go sit down. I can't. Get these five words. It's not, it's not the actual message. It's who's giving the message. These are the words of God giving the message to the people of Nineveh. And we know from the book of Hebrews that it tells us the word of the Lord is active, it is living, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's living and it's active. I've been really chewing over this phrase a lot in my mind lately. Not that I've ever thought the Bible was dead, but I've never really thought of the Bible as alive. That these words not just had power in the past, but they have power now. That if somebody hears them, there's a very real danger. They're going to change your life. And they're going to do to you what it just did to the Ninevites. Five words. When God sends his word to the people, it's not just a text message you can blow off. For the people of Nineveh, it shakes them to their core. It shocks this city. It ripples out. We don't see in this book where it says, well, some people believed, but most people just shrugged and went on with their lives like we would do if we heard a news story. Everybody is a proclamation from God that they're receiving as truth. And God has just told them what? That in 40 days, he is going to raise their city to the ground like Sodom and Gomorrah. He is going to turn everything and everyone they know into ash. But, but they don't miss the fact that in these five words, there is a deadline of 40 days. 
And where there's a deadline, there's an opportunity to change things. And so they repent. In that deadline is kind of buried, and when you unpack it, is buried a call to repent. And so they repent. And the people from the greatest to the least, they start fasting. They do what was always common in cultures back at that time. They'd stop eating. They put on sackcloth. If you've ever worn sackcloth, I've worn it. It is itchy. It is uncomfortable. It's like wearing a burlap sack. It's not comfortable at all. And they sat in the dust. And that was a posture of repentance where you're humbling yourself. You're making yourself physically miserable to focus on repenting. This hardened pagan nation heard five words from God. And they turned and they repented. There's a pastor I was reading not too long ago. He said, it's very common in the church today that think we need to take the gospel and pretty it up and make it more exciting and garnish it. He said, you know what? The gospel is plenty exciting all on its own. You just need to say it for it to be exciting. Look at how the gospel flourishes in Nineveh. How it took a proud city and brought them before their Lord. It's still a formula to salvation even today. Peter said in Acts 2.38, we must believe in the truth of God and repent of our sins. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That we are still today called to believe in God as the Ninevites believed, and to repent, and through that, is salvation. Here's what I want to sit you on. Brothers and sisters, that the Ninevites could believe God, receive the truth of God, believe that, and repent because of five words. What should we do with the 783,000 words from God we are given in the Bible? That God has given you all of that. Should we repent even more? How much more should we believe God? You have all of the prophets, all of the apostles marching right into your life, proclaiming the truth of God with their big bells, ringing it out for you to hear 783,000 words calling you to listen, to believe, to repent, and to change. Well, throughout modern history, time and again, we've seen a very predictable trend of church attendance in relation to what's going on in our culture, usually when there's personal tragedy or when there's nationwide tragedy. And the trend usually is when bad things happen, people go to church. And when good things happen, people drift away. And we saw this very clearly in the Sundays after 9-11. When 9-11 happened, people went to church in a big way. Pastors reported, they did a, a, a Pew study of this, that in the three, three or so Sundays afterwards, that church attendance shot up to 50% of all adults in the United States went to church. That is unheard of. Today, that number stands around 20% of all adults in, in, in this country go to church on Sundays. I was driving to church today. Thank God that it's just this nice, peaceful drive. I said, but God, I would not complain 
if these streets were packed with people going to church. I would love to see that far more than a peaceful drive. We see that God often uses, in his wisdom, tragedy to push people toward him. That prosperity, as much as we love it, takes us away from God. And that tragedy often helps us turn away from evil and turn toward him. Now in verse 6, if you still have your Bibles open, you can see how there's a transition. A transition between the street level, where we're talking about the people on the ground, the people in the city, and then suddenly the author takes us right up into the palace, and we get this high-level view of what happens up there in the palace. What I find is very interesting is I can sort of understand, although I find it very unlikely, that people in the city of a pagan nation would suddenly repent But I would think a a pagan king with all this power, with all this authority, would be more stubborn than Jonah. And yet he's not. He gets right down there with the, the rest of them. And the question again is why? Why would this king, powerful king over this city, suddenly throw himself on the ground and put sackcloth on his body and fast and ask God for forgiveness? Well, what we're witnessing here is a man who has been softened up by tragedies. Now, not in your Bibles, not in the NIV, but in some other translations, the more accurate translation of Jonah 1 verse 2 heavily suggests that tragedy had been befalling Nineveh. That some sort of unspecified calamity had been raining down on this city that God had sent to them. And so God was basically kind of a boxer, and he was softening them up. He was dealing them blow after blow. Biblical historians speculate that this right here might be King Asserdan III. Yeah, that Asserdan III, right? Asserdan III. Well, we know from Asserdan III, he was an Assyrian king, that his reign was marked by a lot of ill omens, by earthquakes, by riots in the streets, by even a great famine. So whoever it was, whether it was Asherdan the third or some other king, we know that God had been sending tragedies to Nineveh to prepare this king's heart for repentance, to wean him off of his own drunkenness and power and say, look how quickly it can all dissolve and go away. Whatever it was, God used this tragedy to change this, heart's, this man's heart, to change it, turn it away from evil and toward God. And that's what repentance is. We've talked about this before. Repentance is not saying you're sorry and going and doing it again. Repentance is coming to God and saying, God, I hate this thing I'm doing so much. I want to turn away from it and turn back to you. It's a course correction in your life. And for a course correction, you always need divine intervention. You need God to come into your life and help you turn away. You cannot do that on your own. But Pastor Justin, you say, what about free will? Well, yes, you have free will. But your will is only free in the sense it will follow what your heart desires the most. Before you are in Christ, what does your heart desire the most? Sin. So your free will will always pursue sin. You will never, under your own power, turn toward God and say, well, now I'm going to start living righteously. 
It will not happen until and unless God comes down in your life, softens your heart, puts the Holy Spirit in there to start regenerating your heart and opening yourself up to faith. Only then can repentance happen. And that's what's happening right here in the heart of this powerful king. When you become a child of God, you start seeing things the way God sees them. You start hating the sin in your life as much as God. Well, maybe not as much as God, but you start hating it. I hate the fact that sin is always kind of lurking in the shadows, waiting to pounce on me, waiting to latch back onto my life, sometimes very quietly, sometimes very insidiously through small things. And I hate the fact that it's trying to pull me back down into old patterns. It's trying to pull me back into a place where I'm going to disobey the one who died for me. The one who loves me. The one who continues to give me a do-over in my life. Sin wants you to betray the one who died for, died for you. When you become a child of God, you want to see sin put in its place, which is far behind you in your rearview mirror. You don't want it to be in your future. You want God to be in your future. That's only going to happen if you and I repent and we continually repent the way the king of Nineveh did. Turn away from evil. Turn toward God. Well, out of everything we're told here in chapter 3, again, we're not really given much insight into what Jonah thinks. We're going to get into that next week. Chapter 4 is all about what Jonah thinks. But I have to imagine, again, my imagination going around, I have to imagine when he goes into this city, he assumes one of two things are going to happen. Either the people of Nineveh are going to ignore him, or they're going to kill him and then ignore him. One of those two possibilities. So he hopes it's kind of the first, but, you know, there you go. And I can only imagine Jonah's consternation. He's ringing that bell, maybe even just muttering, yet 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. Wonder if I can take a lunch break yet. Yet 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then he looks up and people are on their knees and their tears streaking down their face. And they're holding their hands up to the heavens. And they are praying for the first time in their lives. And a spiritual revival is rippling out through this entire city. And Jonah is upset. We're going to talk about that next week. But man, his consternation is so high that everybody does listen to God's word. And they do repent. But it's not like Jonah sees this happening and he suddenly goes, this is a marvelous time for me to go into the city square and to start preaching about what I know about God. To share the scriptures with them. And to tell them all these ones to read the Psalms to them. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't look to convert these people into becoming Jews. So even the king is left in the dark. In verse 9 it says, he's in the dark whether or not the repentance effort, this massive citywide edict that he's now proclaimed that everybody, including the animals, have to wear sackcloth and repent. He has no idea if it's even going to happen, if it's going to take effect. He says in verse 9, who can tell if God will turn and relent? Well, guess what? Who could tell? Jonah could tell. Jonah could go up to the king and say, guess what, king? I just got gobbled up by a whale. When I was down there, I repented. And God turned and he relented. 
and he showed me great mercy. And also I got vomited up onto dry land, which was really gross. Let me tell you about that. As a kid, I loved that verse because I could talk about vomit in church and my parents couldn't stop me. Now I'm preaching about it and I need to stop. All right. We were telling the story of the Bible. But in any case, Jonah's not really saying anything here, is he? He's not going above and beyond his duty. I like to imagine that even as the city is putting on sackcloth, figuring out how they can tie it onto cows and chickens, Jonah is just, he's throwing his hands up in exasperation, and he storms his way out of town without saying another word. But here's something to remember. That God made the people of Nineveh. God made each one of them. He knew them by name. He loved those people just as he did us. He loved them even as they rebelled. Their entire lives were spent in nonstop sin and rebellion against their creator. They had been doing nothing but blasphemy, nothing but wickedness, and yet God looked at them and he had pity upon them and he had compassion. And so he worked his will and his plan through his prophet to call them to repent and to suddenly unleash grace, gracious mercy upon them. It's like God is holding a big bucket of grace. He's just waiting for that one moment that he leads them all to this moment that they're on their knees, and then he dumps out this mercy all over this city. What a wonderful time. What a wonderful moment that God then binds up his wrath. He holds it back like a dam. So in one sense, he's unleashing mercy and he's holding back wrath. In 1994, the U.S. government came up with what was commonly called the three strikes and you're out law. This was supposed to deter criminals by saying, if you perform more than two serious crimes in your life, you will be locked up forever. That's it. No chance of parole. Three strikes, you're out. I don't really want to add to the debate because it's been debated, but I want to point out how incredibly fortunate we are that God does not have a three sins and you're out policy. Because if he did, if he had three sins and you're out, Jonah would be a skeleton in the belly of a fish. If he had three sins and you're out policy, then Nineveh would be a smoking crater somewhere in the Middle East. And if he had three sins and you're out policy we would be sitting here this morning in frozen terror, contemplating the eternity of hell that was coming our way. If that was the case. But thank God it's not. Thank God we have a God of second chances, a God who is willing in his grace and his mercy to give us a do-over. Say, you didn't deserve it. You did nothing to deserve it. But here you go. A God who responds to true repentance with mercy and grace. Now we don't know what the Ninevites did with their do-over. We don't know if this truly brought them into a state of saving grace or not. I pray to God that they did. But you can answer this question for yourself. When God gives you a do-over, what are you doing with that? What are you doing with your life Can you look at before you were saved and after you were saved and see a clear difference? Or are you still holding on to those same sins? Are you still nursing them in private? 
Have you started proclaiming the gospel? Have you started showing forgiveness and grace to other people the way that God has given you? What are you doing with the do-over that God's given in your life? Jonah made a good choice this week. It's about the only good choice he makes in this whole book. Let us make good choices as well. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, let us rejoice today that in this moment of history, 120,000 men, women, and children got on their knees before you because of five words. They got on their knees and they repented of their wickedness, of their sin that had so greatly offended you. Lord, that for that one moment, they turned toward you. And Lord, in that moment, you didn't turn your back on them, but you love them. And you use this as a way to, for them to access your mercy. How true that is in our life, that we get your mercy. When we say, Lord, I repent. I am sorry. I know my sin. I know my guilt. I know how great it is. I know how great it offends you. And I have read your word and I believe your word. I want no more to do with this old life. I want that new life you promised me, God. Give it to me. And help me never to look back. Lord, help us. We are weak and sin keeps trying to come into our lives. Lord, we need your strength. We need your intervention. We need your reminders. We need your word. We need our brothers and sisters to help us. Lord, help us to conquer sin and access the victory we have in Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.